Welcome to Wednesday Word, a Bible study led by Pastor John Jenkins of Northport Baptist Church. All right, well today we're going to go back to Acts chapter 12. And we started this last week, maybe we've been here three weeks, I don't know. But Acts chapter 12 is a great chapter in the Bible. And we learn a lot of different truths here that I think are paramount. I mean, very paramount for the church. And a lot of things we don't do well as a church. And so last week we talked about that, especially in the area of corporate prayer. But I just want to continue that a little bit through this story so that you can see what I believe is the primary ministry of the church. And I believe the primary ministry of the church is prayer. Now, I know people would disagree with that, but I don't think anything can happen without prayer. I think everything that we do as a church flows or funnels out of prayer, everything, no matter what it is. I think it has to start there. And if it doesn't start there, I think most of the time our efforts are futile. And I think most of the time that's what we do. We do it without prayer. We do it in our own wisdom, in our own plan, in our own strength. And what are the results? Most of the time, futile results. I mean, weak results, powerless results, not the stories we read about in the Bible. And so I want you to see some of the ways I think we've been duped in the church. And some of the things I think we've been duped in, really Satan didn't have to do it. We've done it to ourselves. And some of that's pride. Some of that's just being uncomfortable in certain situations. And so we start doing it our way rather than God's way. And usually that doesn't work out well for us, does it? This usually doesn't work out well for us. But usually what do we tend to lean towards? That way rather than God's way, right? Because it's easy, because it's comfortable, because we like it better. And so I just want you to see some of those things in this story. And so we read it last week, and I'll read portions of it today, but I'm not going to read the first part of it. But in Acts chapter 12, the beginning of Acts chapter 12, we see a man named Herod Agrippa, and we've talked about him, and I've told you who he is. But Herod Agrippa is normally not in Jerusalem. He lives in a very palatial palace in Caesarea on the seashore. But he is in Jerusalem at the beginning of Acts chapter 12 because of one particular reason. It's Passover. And Herod would always come to Jerusalem at Passover. And this was a tradition for the Herods because they would do this. Because think about when Jesus was in Jerusalem for Passover, right before he was crucified, there was another Herod in the Bible that was in Jerusalem for Passover. His name was Herod Antipas, and that would be Herod Agrippa here in Acts chapter 12's uncle. And so they are there because all of Israel gathers in Jerusalem, and it's a festival, it's where you got to be because everybody's there. So they would always come on Passover. And so Herod Agrippa is there on Passover, and he tends to be a little weird. So what he decided to do, he didn't like the church and what the church was doing. So he had one of its leaders beheaded. And that leader was James, the brother of John, one of the sons of Zebedee. And so he had him beheaded. And the Jewish leadership, especially in the church, the Jewish church, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, they loved it. And they praised Herod Agrippa. 
And you're going to see later in Acts chapter 12, he liked praise. And it wasn't good for him, but he likes praise. And so they praised him. So he said, well, if they like that so much, wait till they see what I'm going to do next. So he arrests the ringleader of the Christian church, whose name, of course, is Peter. And he has him arrested, and he is going to do the exact same thing to Peter that he did to James. He's going to behead him. He's going to kill him with a sword. The only thing he does is he's going to wait until after Passover because you don't kill prisoners at Passover because it's sacrilegious. Now, I remember we talked about that according to Jesus and what happened at Passover with Jesus, but different story, but they didn't kill. So Passover is an eight-day festival, so he just threw Peter in prison, not just any prison. He threw him in the Fortress Antonio, the public jail, where Jesus was scourged, where he was beaten. And this prison, very interesting, was built right next door to the temple. And the reason it was built right next door to the temple is so that they could look into the temple to see what was happening. They built it higher, and guards would stand watch and watch what was going on in the temple. Because if any insurrection happened, anything was going to happen to Rome, it would happen there in the temple because that was the center of everything for the Jewish community. And so Peter was in prison there, and he was in lockdown, basically. Four guards were chained to him, and then other guards were standing at the door and everywhere else. Now, this is what our story is going to start out with, but this is what it says. If you have your Bible there, look there in verse 5. Acts 12, verse 5. But while Peter was in prison... The church prayed very earnestly for him. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that the church prayed very earnestly for James. It doesn't say that. Now, I don't know why it doesn't say that, but I think it's probably because the church didn't really pray for James. And the reason for that is if you go back to Acts 9.31... Right after it talks about Saul's conversion and the persecution of the church, it says that the church experienced peace. And peace always lulls us to sleep, even the early church, and it lulled them to sleep. And James was arrested, and maybe they just thought, God's got this, he's going to take care of this, he always does. But what happened to James? He was beheaded. So at least now they wake up, and at least now they pray. But not only do they pray, how do they pray? Earnestly. Okay, now I want you to understand this word biblically. Because what this word means in Greek is all it means is stretched out. That's what it means. Okay, now what would be a word we would use in our theological churchy words for that? Prostrate, okay? We prostrate ourselves before the Lord, right? We lay flat before the Lord. But that's what this means. It means to be stretched out. It means to be on the ground, to get as low as you can get before the Lord. Humbling yourself, realizing that you ain't got nothing and you can do nothing without Him. And that's the way the church was acting now. It's like, okay, we figured out what happens when we don't come to you. We lost someone we dearly love. But now we're coming to you, stretched out, needing you, and needing your help. That's how the church is praying, earnestly for Peter. So let's just read it, and then we'll talk about it. But this is what happens when they do that. Okay, look at verse 6. <clears throat> the night before Peter was to be placed on trial, he was asleep 
fastened with two chains between two soldiers, and others stood guard at the prison gate. Now, that still fascinates me that Peter can be asleep right before he's about to be beheaded. Now, not only that, he just witnessed somebody he grew up with from childhood beheaded in James. James and John and Peter and Andrew grew up together, and they all had the same job, by the way. They were all fishermen. So they knew each other very, very, very well. So James was a friend, a childhood friend of Peter, and he just watched him beheaded, and he knows he's next, but yet he's asleep. And that's what God does when we pray. He sends peace. But verse 7, he does something else. Suddenly there was a bright light in the cell, and an angel of the Lord stood before Peter. The angel struck him on the side to awaken him and said, Get up. And the chains fell off his wrist, and the angel told him, Get dressed, put on your sandals, and he did. Now put on your coat and follow me, the angel ordered. So Peter left the cell following the angel, but the whole time he thought it was a vision. He thought he was dreaming or sleepwalking. He doesn't really believe it's happening. He didn't realize it was happening. Verse 10, They passed through the first and the second guard posts and came to the iron gate leading to the city. This opened for them all by itself. So they passed through and started walking down the street, and then the angel suddenly left him. Peter finally came to his senses. It's really true, he said. The Lord has sent an angel, and he saved me from Herod and from what the Jewish leaders had planned to do to me. When he realized this, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where the church was what? Okay. Who was gathered to pray? Okay. If they gathered to pray, how were they praying? Were they praying corporately together or were they praying all by themselves? They were praying together, right? Okay. Now I want to talk just for a moment because I think this is really important just about some differences in prayer. Because I truly believe with all my heart, and you know this, I believe prayer is how God has chosen to work on this earth. I believe that. So I believe God works through the prayers of His people. That's how He's chosen to do it. Don't understand it. I wouldn't be dependent on me or you to work that way, but that's how God's chosen to do it. So when we pray, what does God do? He moves, He works. When we don't pray, God does not work the same way He would if we did pray. Now, I'm not going to say God doesn't move and God doesn't work, but He doesn't work in the same way He would if we had just prayed. He just doesn't. And I can show you that scripturally, but He doesn't. God works through the prayers of His people. So that's why I believe the primary ministry of the church is prayer. Nothing ever should we do without prayer. And when I talk about the church, I'm talking about a group of believers, right? We are a faith family. So when I say prayer, what type of prayer am I talking about? Corporate prayer. We need to be praying together and we need to be praying corporately. But is that how we normally do it? And is that how we have done it? No, it really isn't. Okay, so let's talk about the difference between corporate prayer and private prayer or personal prayer or however you want to say it. Okay, just a quick question. What is easier for you? 
Is it easier for you to pray by yourself or easier for you to pray in a group or with people or together corporately? What's easier? It's a lot easier to pray by yourself, right? I mean, number one, that's what you're used to. Number one, if you're like me, you might not be like me, but I pray out loud. And if you do pray out loud by yourself, then no one's there to critique you or look down upon you or whatever you think people are doing with your prayers. But isn't that what we think? Well, what are they going to think if I pray the wrong thing, if I say the wrong thing, or blah, 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 whatever. Probably nothing. That's probably just your own inhibition there, but that's what we think, right? We're self-conscious. And so it's a lot easier to pray by ourselves. And is that normally what we lend to when we talk about pray? And if I ask you to pray for something, how do you pray for something? You pray for it by yourself, not together, corporately. Okay, now does Jesus tell us to pray by ourselves? He does, right? I mean, he does in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. He says, when you pray, now the key word there is when who prays? Okay, you. So who's he talking to? Is that singular? Yes, that's you. That's personal. That's very personal. So when you pray, what are you to do? You're to close the door, right? You're to go into a quiet place, a secret place for you and God to meet. Okay, is that private prayer? Is that personal prayer? Is that important? You better believe it's important because what happens during that time, that's where you get along with God. And that is where you walk with God and that's where you talk with God just like God intended it in Genesis chapter 3. That is where you build your relationship with God. Okay? That is of immense importance and necessary. Did Jesus do that while he was on this earth? All the stinking time, right? He did it all the time. But is that all Jesus did while he was on this earth? No. No. Okay, when the disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray, how did he start out teaching them how to pray? How does the Lord's Prayer start out? Okay, does it start out, Your Father, which art in heaven? Okay, is that plural? Okay, our, okay. So who's praying and how are they praying in that moment when they're praying the Lord's Prayer? They're obviously praying together, correct? If they were praying privately in their prayer room, what would have Jesus told them? Pray this way, your Father which art in heaven, hallowed it be thy name. But he says our Father, right? Okay. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying the night before He is to be crucified. I mean, He is under great distress, right? Does He pray by Himself? No. He doesn't want to. He does. But it ain't because He chose to. It's because the stinking dudes fell asleep. That's why He had to do it. But what did He do when He went into the garden he took who with him? Three with him. Peter, James, and John. And what did he tell them? Keep watch is what he told them. But do you know what that means? It means pray. And then he goes and he falls down in the garden. And he prays the prayer he prays. And he's dropping beads of sweat, which are blood coming out of his forehead. And he prays, God, let this cup pass for me, but let it be your will. And then he goes back, and what does he find? Peter, James, and John's asleep. And what does he say? Guys, can't you just pray with me for one hour? Just keep watching me. Just pray with what? 
with me. That's what he says. Pray with me. So did Jesus always pray alone? Nope. This is the difference. Okay. Your private prayer time is where you have intimacy with God. It is where you get to know God and it is where you get to hear from God. When we come together as a church and when we pray corporately and when we pray together, lifting our voices together, that is where God moves and moves in power. And that is where God works through the prayers of His people. Do you see the difference in that? Okay, why do you think, and we'll do this in February, whenever we have a prayer service, a James 5 prayer service, what do we always do before a James 5 prayer service? We always have time to fast and pray before that, right? And why do you think we do that? Because it's preparing for us to come together corporately and pray. But how do you prepare to come together corporately and pray? You get along with God and you meet with Him and you repent of your sins and you get right with God. And fasting is just simply denying yourself, your flesh to feed your spirit is all you're doing. And when you do that, then you're ready to do what God has called the church to do. And let me tell you, the world needs to see that. The world needs to see a church that prays and doesn't depend on their self, doesn't depend on their power, but experiences the power of God. Because what happens when people come together to pray? Earnestly. Power happens. Yes, sir. Right here? How much is your relationship with God dependent on your circumstances? Well, most of it, for most of us it is. Of course it is. But we need to be dependent on God. Okay, just go back to the life of Jesus. And I want to show you why the world needs to see the church pray. Just before the cross, not long before the cross, in John chapter 11, you have the story of Lazarus. And of course, Lazarus dies. And before Lazarus dies, what did they tell Jesus? They said, Jesus, please come. And why did they tell Jesus to come? Because Lazarus is sick. We don't want him to die. That's why they call for Jesus. But what did Jesus do? He delayed. He waited. He did not go. And the disciples were like, what are you doing? They didn't understand. And so what happens next? Lazarus dies. And then guess what Jesus does? He goes. Now, it's kind of backwards to us, but that's what Jesus does. And he gets there, and of course, Mary and Martha are upset. Their brothers just died. They're upset with Jesus because he didn't come. It's the place in the Bible where we see Jesus weeps. And then eventually he goes to the tomb. And what does he do? But it says something before he calls Lazarus out of the grave. He prays. And do you know what he says when he's praying? Here, I don't want to mess it up. I don't want to paraphrase this, so let me read it so that y'all don't think I'm making it up. 
Okay, let's see. You just listen. Okay, this is John 11. And this is verse 41. So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. But I said it out loud for the sake of all the people standing here so that they would believe you sent me. Then he shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and his feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth, and Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. So Jesus prayed, but not only did he pray, how did he pray? He prayed out loud, and why did he pray out loud? So that the world could hear, so that the world would know what God does through prayer. Right? I want you to know God is the one who sent me, and God is the one doing this because I'm praying to Him so they will believe. So they will believe. Do we need to pray publicly? Do we need to pray corporately? Do we need to pray together so that the world can see? You better believe it. Another great story in the Bible, how about Daniel in Daniel chapter 6? Do you know that story? I hope you do. It's a great story. You need to read it if you don't know it. But at the beginning of that story, there's a king named Darius. And Darius puts Daniel basically in charge of his kingdom. Says, I trust you. And all the others don't like Daniel. So they're trying to trick Darius into getting rid of Daniel. And so they go to Darius and basically fill his head, make it big, and say, you need to make a law that you're a god and everybody has to worship you. And they knew if they did that, Daniel wasn't going to do that and Darius would have to kill him. And so Darius made the law, and then what is the very first thing Daniel went to do when he heard about the law? He went to pray, but how did he pray? He opened his window. That's where you get the book, Open Windows, by the way. Did you know that? He opened his window, and he prayed how? Like he always did. Everybody knew Daniel was a man of prayer, and that he prayed to his God because he would open his window for the world to see. Now, did Daniel have to do that in that moment? You know what he could have done? He could have thought in his mind, you know, this is only 30 days. If I just don't pray for 30 days, then Darius ain't got to do nothing. He ain't going to have to kill me. He ain't going to have to do nothing. It's not a big deal. 30 days, how long is that? It's not long, right? Would we have done that and justified that? Rationalized in our head? Probably. Daniel didn't do that. When Daniel heard, the first thing he did is pray. And then what did they do? Well, Darius had no choice because he signed a law. He signed a decree, and they threw him into the lion's den. And then what did God do? Did God answer Daniel's prayer? And how did he answer it? The same way he does in Acts chapter 12. An angel comes, and what does an angel do? Keeps the mouth of the lion's closed. Now, would Daniel have ever experienced the power of God if he hadn't have prayed? No. He might have been safe. He might have been in that house. Might not have had to worry about his life. But he would have never experienced the power of God, right? No, he would not have. But he prayed. And God did what? Moved. God moves through our prayers. And I'm telling you, prayer is how we minister to one another as the church. What do you think James 5 is in the Bible for? How does the church minister to one another? Through Prayer, that is our primary way to minister to one another inside the church. And when we pray, how are we to pray according to James chapter 5? The fervent prayers of a righteous man will availeth much, right? 
fervently, very similar to earnestly here in Acts chapter 12. It's prayers of desperation. It's prayers in times of need. It's prayer knowing, God, we have you and you alone to trust in this time of need. So that's how we minister to one another primarily. It's through prayer. That is how we minister to the world is through prayer. Don't believe that? Listen to this verse. Okay, you don't have to turn there. I'll just read it. But this is 1 Timothy 2. And of course, this is Paul right before he's about to die. And he's giving Timothy instructions how to lead the church. Timothy at this point is the pastor. He's leading the church of Ephesus, which Paul started. And he's giving him instructions. And this is what he says in verse 1, 1 Timothy 2. I urge you first of all to pray for all people. Ask God to help them intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority, who live peaceful and quiet lives, and you live peaceful and quiet lives marked with godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and understand the truth. So if we want everyone to be saved and understand truth as God does, what will we do? Well, according to this, we'll pray, right? So anytime we want someone to give their heart and lives to Christ Jesus, what should we do? Should we run and share the gospel with them? Well, you got to get there, but you shouldn't start there. You start with prayer. And it should be corporate prayer, the, God's, the prayers of God's people, because these are the instructions for the church. Not Timothy to do by himself. Timothy, this is how you lead the church. This is what you do in the church. You pray. And so that's what I've been trying to get you to see all through the book of Acts as we've been going through this. God works through prayer. He sends His presence. He sends His peace. He sends His power. And you know what else? Sometimes He sends angels. You know what the church does in Acts chapter 5 when all the disciples are arrested and taken to this same jail? You know what the church does? They pray. And you know what God does? He answers their prayer. And how does He answer their prayer? He sends what? An angel. And the angel releases them from prison. And you know what the angel says to them? Go back to that temple and you preach the message of life. And what do they do? The place where they were just arrested, they go preach the message of life. Because oftentimes God sends angels. Now we don't talk a lot about this in the Baptist church, do we? But from a spiritual warfare perspective, aren't you glad we have more on our side than they have on theirs? That's what the Bible says. That's what Elisha says. And so here's a great question because this would be a whole different topic. But there's a lot of misinformation and misteaching and false teaching about angels. A lot of it. Okay, and a lot of that comes out of the Catholic Church. A lot of it comes out of Jewish tradition. But uh, do you pray to angels? Even though God sends angels, right, to minister to you, that's who they are according to Hebrews 1. But do you realize Catholic tradition, they pray to angels. You don't pray to angels. You definitely don't become one. Some people believe people... I. I had a lot of people in my last church believe you became an angel when you died. No, they're, 
That, this is a whole different topic because we could do a lot of false teaching on angels. But you don't pray to angels. But God sends angels. And by the way, do you know, every time you see an angel in the Bible, they're not playing a harp and they're not wearing some frilly dress and they don't have long hair. They're warriors, by the way, always in Scripture. First time you see them in the Bible, in Genesis, what do you see? You see cherubim with what? Flaming swords guarding the garden so that we can't go back in, so we don't eat from the tree of life, so that we're not condemned eternally from God. So there's the first time you see them in the Bible. And then all the way through, you always see them as warriors. And angels are... You don't want to mess with an angel, I'm just telling you. Okay, go read Isaiah 35. There's an Assyrian army and one angel, and guess who wins? The angel. And the Assyrian army is pretty big, by the way, if you go read Isaiah 35. It is 185,000. It's a lot. Carl knows his Bible. But it's amazing what God does through angels and how He ministers to us through angels. But oftentimes in the Bible, do you know what angels are? They're an answer to prayer. Go read the book of Daniel. Answer to prayer. Go read the book of Acts. Acts 5, Acts 12. An answer to prayer. Angels are answers to prayers and the prayers of God's people. Sure they can. Yeah, you can see angels. Not all the time. But I mean, even the Bible tells us you better be careful and be hospitable to strangers because what? You might be entertaining an angel. So angels can take on human form. Here's another thing. Whenever you see an angel take on human form, what is the human form they always take on? A young male. Always a young male. Now think about this just from a military perspective. If you see an army or you see the Navy, whoever, who do you normally see? A young male because those are the ones who fight for us, right? And same thing is true in God's army. That's how they always take on that form as a young male. Always. And so here's the thing. Biblically, angels don't have a sex because they're spiritual beings. They're spirits. They're eternal beings. You ever see a funeral in the Bible for an angel? Nope. You know what Jesus says, and this is where a lot of our misteaching says, goes. He says, you're going to be like the angel, but what does he mean by that? He means you're going to be eternal when you receive eternal life. He's not talking about you're going to become an angel because we're made in the image of God. And that's what started this whole thing in the beginning because Satan didn't want us to be made in the image of God. He wanted to be like God. Just think about the power of prayer and what God does through it. Yes. Oh, sure. <laughs> it did. He could have done whatever he wanted to. But we know who God is. And that should make it all the more important why we pray to him. Right? because he can do anything and he's chosen to work through our prayers. Thanks for tuning in today. Join us next week as Pastor John continues the study. And if you're looking for more, find us at northportbaptist.org.